My name is Paul Austin. I'm the editor of the Grattan Institute, and I'm joined on our virtual panel this afternoon by four experts or Grattan gurus. Firstly, our CEO, John Daly, our health program director, Stephen Duckett, Daniel Wood, who runs our budget policy program, and finally, Brendan Coates, who is the director of the household finances program here at Grattan. Our aim over the next hour is to drill into the expertise of our panellists so we all have a better understanding of the gravest health and economic crisis of our times. I'll talk to each of the panellists in turn, but I will also put to them questions from you, our audience members. Some of you have already submitted questions, and as you know, you're also encouraged to send questions during the course of our discussion over the next hour. And indeed, your questions are starting to flow in as I speak, so thanks for that. I promise to try to put as many of your questions to the panel, but I should also say right from the start that, of course, you will understand that it won't be possible to deal with all of your questions over the next hour. What I can promise you is that the Grattan Institute is determined to continue this conversation over the coming days, weeks and months. We are committed to contributing to informed, measured, evidence-based public discourse and public policy on this terrible crisis. So Stephen, I wanted to start with you. You're our health program director, and you're also a former head of the Federal Department of Health. What's the state of the health crisis in Australia right now, Stephen? So I'll just bring up the uh, current number of cases and so on and how it's gone. All the graphs that I use today are actually going to be, uh, are already in a blog on the Grattan website that uh, Will Mackey and I released this morning. Basically, uh, there, Australia has over 2,500 cases, in fact, 2630 uh, on the 25th of March. The more recent days data are still a bit unstable. And you can see from this graph that uh, we were, uh, we're, we're increasing our number of cases at around about three, we double the number of cases around about three and a half day, three and a half, every three and a half days. So we're way better than Spain, Iran and Italy who were uh, doubling every two days, uh, but we're obviously not as good as some other countries which like Singapore, which were uh, doubling every 10 days. Unfortunately, it looks like our rate of doubling has got worse over the last week or so. Um, so we're, we're not in good shape. So, uh, so in terms of where we are, we, we have to be then saying, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of this enormous exponential growth? In, and Stephen, uh, and yep. Stephen you, to go to that point, you've done some pretty concerning, very concerning research about the prospects for our hospitals and particularly the prospects of our intensive care units becoming overwhelmed. What can you tell us about that? So assuming we continue with the, the current rate of growth, the exponential rate of growth, then around the 11th of May, uh, around the 11th of April, given the 2,200 or so intensive care unit beds we've got, then we'll run out of intensive care unit beds. Uh, if obviously the rate of growth slows, then that is that actually gets pushed out. Uh, so if we double every five days, for example, we're now talking about the 20th of April. Now, obviously, you, there are a number of ways of doing that. You can double the number of intensive care unit beds. Uh, states are looking at that right now. They're purchasing additional ventilators and so on. Uh, but obviously they can only be, you need oxygen, uh, piped oxygen and so on to look after these patients. But doubling the number of intensive care unit beds when we are doubling the number of cases every three days only buys you three days. So we are in a, we're looking at a very serious situation in ICU availability in the next couple of weeks. A very serious situation indeed. And we're getting numerous questions, Stephen, while you speak that really go to perhaps the hardest question of all, and I'll try to sum them up. What happens if we reach the point 
that our hospitals are indeed overwhelmed? What sort of unthinkable decisions would our hospitals and our doctors be faced with then? Well, the first, the first issue is trying to defer that occurring, and, and Grattan has been consistent about we've got to slow this and try and stop this, uh, this growth. But obviously uh, we try and increase the capacity, try and avoid the, the crisis, trying to double the number of ICU beds and so on, uh, bring in uh, operating theatres into ICU sort of thing. So there's lots of strategies to try and just manage for a few more days but otherwise, we're going to have to be saying uh, some people who in normal circumstances might have been given an ICU bed might not be able to have that ICU bed and might just be accommodated in an ordinary ward bed. And Stephen, we're also getting lots of questions about what I suppose I would call the mathematics of the virus. Now, we hear a lot about the exponential growth of infections, and you've uh, touched on it today. Just explain for us, if you can, what exactly does that mean and what does it suggest about where this crisis is headed? So the, the, the maths is, is good and bad in a way. Um, because it's growing exponentially, you know, doubling every three, three and a half days, it means that uh, the, the, the system is going to be overwhelmed, relative, as we said, 11th of April or so. But the other, the good news about the mathematics is if we stop it, if we slow the growth, then we get negative, ex negative exponential where the, the, uh, the disease drops away very, very rapidly indeed. So on the one hand, we're in the moment in this terrible positive exponential. Hopefully with tougher controls, we can get negative exponential. I just want to add one more thing about the ICU limitation. It's not only machines. Basically, an ICU machine has an experienced nurse 24-7 next to that patient. And these are very experienced nurses. And we just can't create them overnight. So we're going to have to deal with uh, bringing other nurses into the ICU, supervised by these experienced nurses, to help. But, it, but the, the staffing situation is, uh, is as serious as the ventilator machine situation. And Stephen, another dominant theme in the questions is schools. Now, there does seem to be an inherent contradiction in the messages coming from our leaders, depending on where you live around Australia. The message seems to be stay at home, but if you happen to have school-aged children, send them off to school. What should happen with the schools, Stephen? Should they be closed? I think there's been massive uh, confusion in the messaging. I would have closed schools a week ago that I think we should have uh, been quite serious. A simple, single message, stay at home for everyone. It's it's not hard to explain that, you know, we've got some states saying it's on, it's off, it's maybe it's, you know, and I think we should be saying, even though the risk for children themselves is, is quite low, uh, the children have parents, they have grandparents. And so I think we've got to be really careful about uh, any form of transmission. A simple message is what we should be doing. Thanks, Stephen. Now, Danielle, I want to bring you in here. Danielle is the head of our budget policy program at Grattan, and she's also president of the Economic Society of Australia. Danielle, in broad terms, what's happened to the global economy, and in particular, the Australian economy, over the past couple of months and especially the past couple of weeks? Well, essentially what's happened is the, the, the global health crisis has become a global economic crisis. And as this virus has spread to different countries, um, each of them have got to the point on the curve where they've really seen the point that Stephen has been talking about. They've, they've come to the realisation that without substantial social distancing measures, their hospitals are going to end up being overwhelmed. And so they've taken that very hard decision to shut down you know, significant swathes of the economy in order to avoid those deaths. So the first round economic responses here really come from those public health measures. Um, you know, the way I'm starting to think about it is really the government is suspending the normal operations of so many of the markets across the economy. They're essentially putting a wall in between supply and demand. So if we think about how that's played out in Australia, um, 
the sectors that have been on the front line are really the, the tourism sector and what I call the sort of social consumption sector. So things like um, bars and restaurants, gyms, hairdressers. Um, government's already said, you know, essentially those have to close or they've taken a very significant income hit. Um, that has meant that for a lot of those businesses, they're not able to support keeping workers on um, and there's going to be significant flow-throughs to unemployment that Brenda's going to talk about. Um, and then that starts to um, have reverberations through the economy. Anyone who's a supplier to those particular industries has been hit. And as we ramp up these types of containment measures that Stephen was alluding to, when we get to the world where we say, you know, all non-essential services are shot off, everyone should stay at home, um, what that means is that then flows through to another whole lots of other firms. So any business where you cannot do that work from home is going to be hit in that in that sort of second stage of restrictions. So construction businesses, mining, manufacturing, all of those are going to experience quite sharp supply side shocks because their workers simply aren't able to do what they need to do. Um, and then you start talking about sizable second round effects in a world in which people are taking big hits to their income. They are very uncertain about their employment prospects and whether they're going to have a job, you know, next week or the week after. Um, people simply stop spending. Um, so we saw in China, you know, all sorts of durable good purchases went through the floor, um, new car sales down 90%. Um, so there are not many parts of the economy that will not be touched by this in some way. So um, I assume, Danielle, that the budget surplus that we used to hear so much about, we can forget about that. Am I right in saying that the big question now really is whether we're headed for a recession or even a depression? I think that's right. I mean, it's this has moved so fast. It's hard to think, you know, just two or three weeks ago, um, you know, we were sort of out there saying this, this looks like it could get really ugly. Um, and, you know, we were having debates about whether this would be a sort of a mild downturn or a recession. Um, you know, we are far beyond that now. Um, one of the challenges in this sort of world where things are moving very fast is that a lot of the economic statistics that we would normally look to, things like unemployment, um, things like GDP, they just, they lag so much that we, we find it difficult to see where we're at. Um, I would say a special shout out here to the ABS. They are doing a really stand-up job of trying to get as much timely data about this crisis into the public domain as quickly as they can and get that into the hands of policymakers. Um, so just yesterday, they put out a uh, business survey uh, it wasn't pretty reading. Um, about half of Australian businesses have already experienced an adverse impact from COVID-19 in the past two weeks. Almost 90% expect to experience some adverse impact in, in the coming months. Um, so there is no question that this is big. Um, if we sort of do a thought experiment and say, well, let's say, you know, in the world where we go to full lockdown, we take a hit to GDP of 30% this month, 30% next month, 30% for month three, um, you know, that starts to come off in month four, you're still talking about a 15% hit to GDP over the course of the year. Um, so we are definitely in recession. The only question, you know, the big question is how deep it will be, and that will depend crucially on the government response. We're definitely in recession. I want to bring in Brendan Coates now. Brendan is the head of our Household Finances Program and a Distinguished Economist. We've got a pretty straightforward question from Greg, which I'll direct to you, Brendan, and it goes to the depression and the very human side into our economy. Greg asks, how many Australians will be unemployed when we get to the other side of this crisis? Brendan? I think... Just to go to Greg's question, I think that first of all, it's, thinking, it's worth thinking about conceptually what this thing is. It's, just, it's basically a, a temporary, although potentially very sustained hit to income that people are experiencing. And our objective in, in pol with policy and everything else is basically to spread that out over as long a period as we can. And the degree to which we'll end up with a level of um, sustained unemployment depends on both the, the stringency of the measures put in place their duration, and then how good the government is at dealing with the policy response. So on the first part of it, the direct hit to unemployment is going to be very large. We're already seeing this with the number of people who are lining up outside Centrelink offices. One real um, shortcoming that Australia has is we don't release 
say, weekly data on the number of new un unemployment claims like the US. We've already seen last week that those claims were about six times higher in a lot of states than what they were even at the peak of the GFC. Um, but it's pretty clear that we're seeing hundreds of thousands of Australians have lost their job in the last week. Essentially, the economy has gone from cruising along at close to 60 k's an hour to hitting a wall in about a week. Um, Jeff Borland's done some really good work at the University of Melbourne estimating the, the direct cohort that might be affected by this, and it comes to something like close to a million workers, so 7 8% of, um, of all workers in the economy, and that's focused really just on cafes, restaurants, recreation, clubs and pubs, so those affected by those direct measures to date. Um, estimates that have been done in the US by the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve have essentially said that for Q2, unemployment could be something like anywhere between 10 and 40% based on the amount of people whose jobs rely on a fair degree of physical proximity. And if you're in one of those jobs that requires a substantial amount of physical proximity, it's very hard for you to, in fact, do your job. We're doing some estimates on those right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if our numbers are in the range of, you know, 20% or more. Um, then that's the direct impact. Then there's the secondary impact, which is, as Danny mentioned, you're going to see further tightening. You might see further tightening um, in, this, in the stringency of the measures but you then also see flow-on impacts where businesses that aren't directly affected, but whose customers all of a sudden lose their livelihoods and they tighten their belts, could therefore see um, them basically not, you know, not making new purchases, not making new investments, cutting every, cutting back on cash flow, basically cutting back everything to survive. And that second impact could be conceivably very, very large. Now, we don't have a good handle on how big it could be. It could be, it's going to be proportionate to the direct impact. Um, but you could easily see a second random impact that's very, very large, that's also an additional few percentage points of GD of unemployment. Um, and it's worth pointing out here that we're talking about unemployment, but really we're talking about job losses. Because there's a real open question at the moment about how the ABS will treat people who have, say, been furloughed by Virgin, they're on uh, unpaid leave. You know, if you ask them in the surveys, maybe they don't actually show up as being unemployed because they're technically linked to an employer. Uh, they've been unemployed for less than four weeks and they're not looking for work. Um, but the right measure is to look at the number of hours lost in the economy, and we think that number could be very large. Another big question for you, Brendan, an important matter. How real is the threat to the stability of our, of our financial system? What, what's the RBA done so far, and will that be enough? So I think the best way of thinking about this at the moment is actually just to look at the stock market, where the ASX is down something like 40%. Now, that's much larger than you would expect to see just from the shock to incomes alone. Danny's talked about a hit to GDP, maybe 15%. But the net present value of um, the future income streams for those firms, um, if it was only a 15% fall for a quarter or for a year, the ASX wouldn't be down 40% right now and our banks wouldn't be looking the way they are. Markets are clearly pricing in a fair degree of a fair risk of this cascading into some kind of financial crisis um, where firms essentially shudder um, they default in their liabilities and it cascades through. I think that's something we have to take very seriously. Um, government is and the RBA are working pretty hard at the moment to try to prevent that. The, the measures so far are focused on basically making uh, credit as easy to access as possible and as cheap as possible. So the RBA has cut its interest rate baseline interest rate to 25 basis points. It's hard to see it going much lower. Um, they've started quantitative easing. Uh, so they're purchasing bonds with the aim of trying to have the three-year government bond yield at 25 basis points. Um, and they're also offering access to credit for, for banks if they're lending to businesses in particular. They can basically borrow at 25, 0.25%, 25 basis points, and then lend that out to, to businesses to try to help businesses be tied over during the period when they're facing a shortfall in income so that they can sustain their balance sheets and essentially not become bankrupt in the period where we're dealing with the public health response. And we've had a question on uh, that issue, Brendan, from Brian. You mentioned quantitative easing. Brian asks, what are the risks of ever-increasing stimulus spending, quantitative easing and, indeed, money printing? At what point do the risks outweigh the benefits during this pandemic? Well, I think we know that the, the long-term costs of... Uh, potential short-term, even extended short-term recessions are very large. So, you know, there's a lot to be said for doing as much as possible to avoid the worst of the recession. I would have argued even before the crisis came along today 
that the government and the Reserve Bank probably should have been doing more to stimulate demand in the economy. The economy looked like it was growing below potential. You know, unemployment was at five and a quarter percent, and we thought that was probably too high when the RBA's own work was suggesting an unemployment rate of less than four and a half percent was needed to get wages growth going. Now, that's only a couple of weeks ago we were having those conversations, which shows how fast this has moved. Um, so I would say the risks at the moment would seem to be relatively low. Um, and the costs of not acting are very, very high. There are reasonable questions about the degree to which quantitative easing will actually work in the short term. So while we're trying to shut everything down, it's pretty clear that businesses aren't going to go out and borrow to you know, invest in new capital equipment because they don't know, uh, one, whether they're going to be in business in three months, and two, what their customers, their big demand is going to look like after that. Um, but certainly doing everything we can to keep borrowing cheap and most importantly, make sure that firms and households can access credit to tide them through what is hopefully, well, certainly is a temporary demand shock um, of a really unclear duration, really does need to be the priority. Okay, John Daly, can I bring you in here? Because I want to ask you, John, about the broad strategy or strategies that our policymakers should be adopting here. You've been the CEO here at Grattan since it was founded 11 years ago. And this week, you published an article which you identified as probably the most important piece you've written over those 11 years. You defined the possible end games of this crisis. Just run through them for us, John. Thank you. Uh, and, and I think... It's interesting that we've actually had relatively little discussion of this, and that's because I think all of the end games are pretty unpleasant. Uh, and so people don't like talking about them. But the catch is, unless you have a clear view about what end game you're aiming for, it's very hard to put into place sensible looking health measures, fiscal measures, um, uh, and other you know, legislative changes, depending on what you're trying to do. So that the end games we defined and of course, all of these got variations, but I think these are the three basic end games. End game one is that you essentially say, we're going to let this virus pass through the um, population. Maybe we're going to try and flatten the curve a bit, but we're going to accept that the infection rate stays above one. In other words, each infected person infects more than one other person. Then you get exponential growth. And even if you go down from the exponential growth we've seen, which is about one person infecting every two and a half people, even if they only infect one and a half people, you still get pretty rapid growth. Um, uh, and for those uh, who weren't concentrating that hard in their maths classes, um, David Walsh from Mona has written a beautiful explanation um, for those who perhaps, you know, spend more time being awake in their arts classes and their maths classes about exponential <laughs> growth. Um, so under strategy one, you essentially let it run through um, your population. That's what Boris Johnson was talking about up to about a week and a half ago when he was talking about herd immunity uh, in the population. If, if it runs for long enough, soon enough, um, eventually so many people have been infected and therefore are immune to being reinfected pretty much uh, that eventually the, the disease dies out or at least becomes much, much slower. Um, that is effectively what has happened in Iran. There is a significant possibility that that will happen in the United States. As I said, it was the strategy that the UK effectively said it was going for up until a week and a half ago. Now, of course, the catch with that strategy uh, is that, you know, materially more people will get sick and, and a number of those will, get die, will die, particularly if we overwhelm the health system. We do know that your chances of surviving this virus are much higher if we can get you an intensive care bed if you need one. Obviously, if we have a lot of infections at once, uh, and no matter how much you flatten the curve, at the peak of the virus, you'll have a lot of people who are infected, um, and that causes real strains. The other issue that we've identified at Grattan Institute is that under that scenario A, you don't know how long it's going to go on for. And consequently, it could easily be six, nine, 12 months in which we continue to have very substantial restrictions on economic activity. And that creates big problems for businesses because many businesses will say, I can't afford to hang on for six, nine, 12 months and not knowing how long that is. Um, it makes more sense for me to effectively close my business now. So we expect that the economic cost of that strategy in the long run will be extremely high because a lot of businesses will close 
and restarting them afterwards is really hard. If the business has essentially been dissipated, um, then uh, all of the organisation of the business is gone. Um, it, its creditors and suppliers may well be left out of pocket. That has second round impacts through the economy. So the economic costs of it are, in fact, extremely high. End game, uh, end game B, as we defined it, is one that says we're just going to track and trace every single case, find every person who's been infected as quickly as we can, um, find out all the people that they've been near over the last couple of days that they might have infected, ensure that we know all the people that they've been near, put all of them in isolation, um, and try and keep the lid on things. That's roughly speaking what Taiwan and Singapore have been trying to do with, with reasonable success. Um, Endgame, of course, one of the problems with Endgame B is as soon as you've got quite a lot of new infections per day, in Australia, I mean, we'll see what the eventual numbers are, but we're currently running at about well over 300 new cases a day. That's 300 new cases. Those people have probably interacted one way or another, even in these times with, say, 20 other people. So that's 6,000 contacts you've got to make today and 6,000 more contacts you've got to make tomorrow. Uh, and for, obviously that winds up overwhelming the track and trace system very quickly. If, on the other hand, you have a much more limited number of cases and almost all of them are coming in from overseas, which is the case in Singapore at the moment, you can basically um, isolate them effectively at the airport. It's a viable strategy, but we're no longer in that world. Endgame C is one in which you say, we are going to try and um, slow the rate of growth of the virus below one, so that each infected person infects less than one other person. As Stephen explained earlier, exponential growth works in both ways. Exponential growth, very ugly. As soon as one person's infecting more than one, it takes off. But it works in reverse. If each person is inf infected person is infecting less than one person, the number of newly infected people can drop pretty quickly. Now, that's exactly what we saw in China, in Wuhan in particular, but China more generally. We know that the Chinese government essentially wound up shutting down a very large proportion of the total Chinese economy um, uh, and essentially telling everyone to stay home. And the consequence of that was that the number of cases fell very quickly. Now, it takes about two weeks for that to happen. So once you've locked down hard, It'll take about two weeks before you see the effect of that in the numbers. And then, this is what we saw in Wuhan, they started to fall pretty quickly. That, of course, has been the strategy of Italy, France, um, and Israel and New Zealand over the last couple of days. Um, uh, Italy went there um, a little over two weeks ago, and their numbers for the last four days have been very encouraging. So the number of new cases is lower than their peak. Um, uh, it's not growing anymore. Um, and, and the idea is so long as you've got your infection rate, you know, a good way under one, then eventually it will die, will more or less die out. And you get your new cases per day to a relatively small number, call it, say, 10 a day, at which point track and trace becomes really viable. Of course, the other advantage of that is you've got time um, because this shutdown will last, you know, somewhere between six and eight weeks, as it did in China. You've got time to build yourself a much better track and trace system. The advantage of that, obviously, is far fewer people die, but also we think there'll probably be a much smaller economic impact because although you've squashed economic activity down even more than we have already, um, you've got a reasonable chance that at the end of this period, you'll be able to restart a lot of economic activity. Not everything. International tourism is not going to be a big thing for a long time. International students are probably not going to be a big thing for a long time. Um, but, for example, domestic tourism, um, domestic restaurants, all of those kind of things, you could probably see those kind of activities restart. So those are the three end games as we see them. Essentially, um, flatten the curve but let it run through the entire population. Track and trace, no longer viable for Australia. Um, and essentially stop, then restart, something where you essentially stop economic activity for a long enough period that you see the total number of, in, of new infections fall to negligible levels. That means that track and trace can then be effective. So let's be clear here, John. You're saying that Australia should be choosing end game C and that it is a mistake, a very consequential mistake that we are not. That's right, because, of course, every day that you delay shutting things down hard, 
Maybe you keep someone's business going for an extra day or a couple of days, but the problem is that you also mean that the shutdown will probably be a lot longer. Uh, and, and of course, the longer that shutdown goes, the more businesses will say, I can't live with this. One of the beauties of Endgame C is that I think it provides a plausible reason for businesses to believe that this is effectively going to be a suspension of economic activity for somewhere between two and three months. Given all of the support that government has been putting in place, there's quite a good chance that um, many businesses will say, I can afford to keep the business essentially in suspension for two to three months and then restart it. Um, and that means that we will probably come out of the economic slump um, much faster than we would otherwise. So we think it both saves more lives and it's probably going to be a better economic outcome as well. So, John, I've got a question. I've got many questions, actually, about the three scenarios, but a very um, sharp question from Kate she wants to know, why do you think it is that the Prime Minister and the Chief Medical Officer in Australia seem to be so reluctant to adopt Endgame C? Basically, what are we waiting for? Yeah. Look, there are some things that I frankly have not got a good explanation for. So it was very obvious to a lot of people three or four weeks ago that we should have shut Australia's borders very hard. Uh, this business of allowing people to come home and sort of saying, oh, look, please make sure that you self-isolate is just nothing like good enough when you have a really dangerous disease and when for a long time, well over half of Australia's new cases were essentially people getting off planes and boats. Um, it strikes me that it would have been a much better thing to do and frankly, way lower cost to simply say well, to all of those people getting off planes and boats, you are going to a hotel that we nominate you are going to sit in the room for the next 14 days. And so long as you don't show any symptoms within 14 days, then obviously you can go off on your way. Now, obviously there'd be a cost to putting people in hotel rooms rather than their own houses, but I would have thought that the cost of that relative to the cost of essentially letting this virus run in the community, um, even if you are running with Endgame A, would have been way lower. And I just have no explanation for why we weren't prepared to do that. We were prepared to effectively do that with people getting off a plane from Wuhan, we should have been prepared to do that with people getting off a plane from basically everywhere else. Um, in terms of the other reasons that they might be reluctant here, um, I think there's uh, at least a, a, an argument um, that this amounts to much more significant government intervention in the economy. How could we do that? To which the answer is we are fighting a war and in a war we are all socialists and we all need to get over that. When we're no longer fighting a war, we can go back to being capitalists, but we are fighting a war. I think the second reason is that some people are sceptical that in a democracy you can get this kind of very significant shutdown. Maybe they say you can do it in, in China. Maybe in a democracy like South Korea you can do it, but that's a much more conformist society than Australia. Um, I think Italy is a good example of somewhere which is, you know, arguably a much more, um, uh, a much less... Um, compliant with government democracy than Australia, can I put that uh, as gently as I can? Um, uh, it appears to be working there. And actually, I would argue that historically, Australia has been a very compliant society when people see a really good reason for something. So we were a country that um, uh, adopted rules around seatbelts, um, around drink driving and so on, where actually most of the time you're really relying on voluntary compliance. And we did that a long time before many other countries did. So I think we can do it, but it would rely on really clear messaging, which I might add, I think we could do a lot better on. So I think those are two of the reasons. And then I think the third reason why maybe government hasn't done it is this, there's a certainly in some quarters a, a sort of hope for a Hail Mary pass is how I would describe it. So there's a hope that maybe someone will come up with a cure um, uh, and there's a lot of chatter about um, uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, you know, the, the, the reality, of course, is figuring out whether these things really work and that the side effects are not going to, you know, be worse than the cure. Uh, very hard to do in this kind of environment. There's hopes for a very rapid test. Again, that will help, but I think when it's running this fast, I'm not sure it's really going to help you. And there's a hope that maybe the death rate is way, way lower than we thought it was because we've been miscounting it. Um, the catch, of course, is you're betting the farm on those things. Um, uh, and... 
uh, or much more than the farm, you are betting the country's economy for quite a long period of time. Um, I think those are some of the reasons why governments might be slow to act. And I think it's also, we just find it hard to make really big decisions as humans. Um, and we're essentially asking people to behave very differently from how they have been behaving. We're asking governments to think really differently. And not surprisingly, it takes them a kind of couple of weeks to change gears. Okay, thank you very much, John. Can I go back to you, Danielle? The Australian government is certainly doing a lot, perhaps not following uh, uh, Endgame C, but it's certainly doing a lot to try to cushion the blow here for economic woes for people and for businesses. We've had, I think, two economic packages so far. What's your assessment of the government's packages, Danielle? Well, look, I think they have been reasonably on the, the front foot with this. And um, as we sort of said before, this is, this is constantly escalating. But um, they, they came out pretty fast with the packages. They've committed a sizable amount. So it was currently around $80 billion in, in fiscal measures, 4% of GDP. Um, you know, certainly didn't expect, you know, three months ago when we were talking about budget surpluses to ever see um, a government spending package anywhere near that large. Um, the other thing I think they've done well is they've been quite quick to understand what the sort of the root economic problem is here. Um, so very early on when everyone's sort of grappling with the economics of a pandemic, um, a lot of people were sort of looking back to the last time we had big government stimulus and looking to the GFC and saying we need to stimulate demand. Um, they quite quickly got to the point that this is not the issue here. What we are doing here is trying to bridge a period for households and businesses when the economy is substantially shut down. So we're supporting cash flow for households, we're supporting cash flow for businesses. And the reason we want to do that is we want to come out the other side of this shutdown period um, with hopefully a lot of our productive capacity intact. Um, so those are the things that I think that have been done well. Um, there are some issues with getting that cash out the door fast enough, um, particularly for households, and Brendan might have something to say about that. Um, there's also, you know, big questions about whether this is going to be enough going forward as the economic costs get larger and larger, but the government has clearly signalled that they are willing to do more. Um, you know, if we are talking about an economic hit of 15% of GDP, um, you know, putting in 4% of GDP is not going to be enough to cushion the blow. We, we may well be talking much more significant packages here. And if we look to places like the US and Japan, um, they've already gone a lot further. Okay, a lot further. What more, what sort of things, Danielle, should the Australian government be putting its mind to with regard to helping business? Who's not being looked after? Well, they have, I mean, about 60% of the package to date is being support measures for business. And the, the sort of the big one is about supporting cash flow for businesses, so small and medium businesses, turnover of under 50 million that are employing people. Um, and essentially, it's a measure that we, we pay back the income tax that you're withholding over the course of this year. Um, that will provide somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 for eligible businesses. Um, so that may seem a lot, but if we think about those businesses that are on the economic front line that we we're talking about before, the ones that have already had to close their doors or they've seen their sales dry up, you know, retail businesses, cafes and restaurants, hairdressers, um, even most of them will be receiving the amount towards the lower end of that package. Um, we know they have substantial fixed costs um, and particularly rent is a significant issue for anyone that has a shopfront presence. Um, you know, the average retailer is paying 12000 in rent a month, uh, the average gym 10000 the average cafe 4000 um, These are going to be going out the door month on month during a period where they're not going to have income. Um, so under John's Endgame C, perhaps if you said to them this is only going to be three months, um, a lot of them may have enough cash on hand to get there. Um, but if it goes any longer than that, we are going to see a lot of them going to the wall. Um, so there's two ways the government can deal with these businesses. Uh, either they've got to put substantially more in, in terms of income support, or you need to have a look at the cost side of the equation. And so things like rental holidays, um, so requiring landlords to suspend rents for a period, I think should absolutely be on the table. Um, there are ways in which government can share that cost with landlords. 
Um, there are ways in which you can ensure that any landlords that are leveraged can get loan holidays to, to help them get through that period. But I think that's the only way we're going to save kind of those very significant part of the economy. Um, the other area where the government hasn't done anything yet is in terms of big business. Um, partly I think that's because they haven't been the firms on the front line. Um, most of them aren't, haven't taken the, the income hit that some of those other sectors have yet. Um, partly they obviously have greater capacity to, to weather a, a few months um, with reduced income. But if this goes on longer and this becomes severe, I think there will be increasing calls for perhaps significant corporate bailouts. Um, so, you know, I think if you're looking at the next wave of shocks, that where, is where the government should be turning its mind. Okay, so we have small and medium-sized businesses, Danielle's flagged further support or perhaps more support for big business. But I want to ask Brendan Coates, what about households, Brendan? What's being done thus far for individuals, households? Well, Paul, the big thing that um, the government's done so far is essentially double the rate of new start for those that find themselves output out of work. They've lost their livelihoods because of the public health measures that have been put in place or because, as Danielle said, firms are looking ahead, like a lot of the retailers, seeing that they're not going to be able to cover their costs during this period and therefore have shut down now to try to preserve cash flow. So they've essentially done a couple of things. There's The big one is to expand access to new start um, and double the rates. So that's an extra $550 a fortnight starting from the 27th of April, which uh, is a challenge because it's not going to start for another month. Um, they also have done the first stimulus package a couple of weeks ago gave a payment of $750 to eligible households, including you know, New Start recipients, pensioners, and some concession card holders, including self-funded retirees. There's a genuine question about whether the first have off the rank for these kinds of payments really should be retirees. Um, even though they may have uh, seen a big shock to their income, some self-funded retirees in particular have seen a big shock to their income uh, or their assets because of super. For those that certainly are receiving a large amount of pension, they're probably the one group of society that's most insulated from the changes, at least in the short term. Um, and then we've also seen some access to super. So just going to the new start changes, the big question here is how quickly can we get the money out the door? So we're seeing potentially hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their livelihoods in the last week. Uh, Centrelink is not known. I think it's fair to say, and there's been a public debate in the last year or so about resourcing and how effectively the organisation can meet uh, demand from clients in terms of wait times on the phone and phone calls not being picked up. That's obviously coming under enormous stress at the moment. Um, so people are having trouble getting access to the claims um, and submitting them. At least now the government's put in place a system where people will be able to uh, at least flag at a checkbox on MyGov Yes, I would like to make a claim and their claim can be backdated. But, you know, if we are talking four, six weeks before those payments end up being made, which is quite plausible, um, then that's a very long period of time where households are doing without much income. And our own work has said that, you know, the average household has about $7,000 in the bank, um, which is about 5.6 times their annual income. And, you know, there are many households, you know, that have, you know, less than, $100 or $200 in the bank that basically are living paycheck to paycheck and they're going to be in deep trouble in the coming weeks. The stimulus payments will help, but again, they won't hit for a, for a little while. You know, we're not talking about those stimulus payments hitting until 31 March. Well, actually, no, that'll hit very soon. Um, but the second one then won't occur until July. So a question I think that's worth raising is if New Start is not going to be, those claims not going to be processed fast enough, do we just use the tax system as direct income support to help people through this period until new starts up and running, until we can be confident that everyone can access the payment? Because the consequences for the economy, for our financial system, if people can't make access those payments and make those payments on their obligations will be very large. The alternative, of course, is to do um, support to rents and mortgages, as Danny flagged. Either the government pays now and we work out who ultimately bears the cost later by higher taxes, or you're, you're essentially suspending those repayments on mortgages and rents and you're passing some of the costs on to landlords or to the banks um, and probably, in fact, still on to government. Um, but we definitely need to do more one way or the other in this period of this six-week period where it's just not clear whether that money is going to get into people's hands quickly enough.
Okay, Brendan, New Start has uh, attracted great interest among our audience. I, and the sentiment about the doubling of the rate of New Start seems to be, if I can sum it up, about time. The government says, of course, that this is a temporary measure for what we all hope is a temporary emergency, but our audience seems to want to know, should the new higher new start rate stay after this crisis is over? I suppose that is, is it, is it good policy? I think in part, Paul, that is a question of values. Um, it's certainly clear in, in Grattan's work and in the work of many organisations, um, both in business, you know, John Howard has said this, that new, new start is too low. We have pushed previously in the, um, in the public debate for increasing it by at least $75 a week. Um, uh, we are talking about a much larger increase here. We're talking about an increase of, you know, $275 a week. I'd note that the new rate of new start now is higher than the pension. Um, I don't think that will be a politically sustainable outcome. Um, certainly, we should be raising the rate of new start. And if one of the benefits of this of this crisis is that more Australians recognise how low new start is and how difficult it in fact makes it for people to actually access a job, uh, then that would be you know a silver lining in the crisis if we can come out the other side with a higher rate. I don't think it'll probably stay as high as it is in the long term. And Brendan, you won't be surprised to know that we're also getting a lot of questions about the superannuation measures and also about the future of the property market. I'll come to those two things in turn. On super, the government is allowing people to dip into their funds if they're in dire financial need during this crisis. Just explain those changes for us and answer this question from Frederick. Should that be the new approach to superannuation, should people be able to spend some of their super savings before they reach retirement age? So let's take those in, in sequence. So first of all, what's the government done? They've essentially allowed people to, there are existing early access uh, provisions for financial hardship and compassionate grounds. The trouble is that they are obviously not going to be fast enough and the process is going to be too bureaucratic via the funds themselves for large numbers of people to access that in time. Um, so what the government has instead said is that if you can make an application to the ATO and say that, you know, if you've lost more than 20% of your income, if you become unemployed, then you can access um, $10,000 this financial year and $10,000 next financial year, probably, you know, within the first three or four months, assuming that's the duration of the, the crisis, depending on what option we choose from a public health perspective. Now, we think that's a good thing. Uh, it gives people the option if the new start payments are insufficient to help them uh, to get through this crisis, uh, having that option of being able to access some of their superannuation, um, noting, of course, that that will come at a cost to their, potentially some cost to their retirement, uh, is probably worth it because this crisis is, in fact, unprecedented. Work that we've done has suggested that, you know, that the general principle is the, the younger you are, the more of a hit this will be to your, your superannuation balance and to your retirement income because you're foregoing more years of accumulation. If you're 55 and you take this out, it's not going to be that big a hit. But just even for a 35-year-old, if you're only about the median wage of about 60 grand and you take 20,000 out of your super, you know, you will lose about um, $80,000 of potential drawings from your super in retirement but you get make up for that with about $60,000 of extra age pension payments and therefore you're only 20 grand worse off. So it's maybe not that bad for a middle income earner because the system insulates. On the broader question about whether we should be allowing people to access their super, you know, our view is super is put in place for retirement. That's the purpose. As long as we have the rate of compulsory super set at the right level, which we think of a rate of about nine, nine and a half percent is about right. It achieves, it balances that trade-off between consumption, retirement, consumption, working then the number's probably about right. And we should that's the way we should think about the system. So we've tended to oppose measures that are about allowing people to access more super, say, to buy a house, uh, because the system as a whole is, is largely doing its job and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be trying to mess with that during this crisis. So, Brendan, the property market, a question from uh, Tim. Easy one, really. What are the short, medium and long-term implications for the property market, especially in Sydney and Melbourne? 
So first of all, this does not constitute professional financial advice. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I think you need to look elsewhere if you want that. Um, you know, I think in the short term, we're looking at a freeze. You're basically seeing, you'll see the market shut down. It's going to be almost impossible to sustain auctions and to do open houses. And uh, for rentals, certainly, you'll see that if people are trying to sell an investment property, I could easily imagine the tenants refusing. And maybe that, I'm not, I'm not quite sure about the legal implications of that, but I could easily imagine that not being allowed as part of the public health response. So in the short term, I think you'll see it shut down. The long term, it really depends on how bad this is and whether we have, as Danny has described it, a temporary holiday or shift in shock where we basically, businesses shut down, everyone goes on hold for the for a while, and then we come back whole, uh, or whether it turns into a sustained shock. If it turns into a sustained shock, you'd expect, um, you know, as we normally do during major economic downturns, you would see house prices certainly fall for a period. Um, and it all comes down to how much government's done to insulate households and businesses from those costs. Thanks, Brendan. I've got a question for Danielle, a broader question, very interesting question from Jordan. Jordan asks, what impact will COVID-19 have on the generational bargain? Now, you've written a lot about this, Danielle. Um, Jordan goes on to say, will generational inequality continue to grow or are we likely to see a significant restructuring of our economic and environmental policy as a result of this crisis? Danielle. Thanks, Jordan. That's a nice, easy question there. Um, Look, so there are a lot of aspects or a lot of ways, I would say, that this crisis plays into those generational questions. Um, You know, the very thorny one, quite frankly, is that we have decided as a society that we're going to take a big hit to our incomes, to our economy, in order to save lives. Um, and, and most of the people on the front line in terms of hits to their income will be working age people. Um, most, but not all, of course, lives that we're saving are going to be older Australians. But if we think of a generational bargain in the sense of you know, doing for one generation that we would hope that other generations would do for us, um, to me, that is the generational bargain alive and well. We're, we're looking after, you know, we decided we're going to look after this group and I would, I think all of us would hope that if we were we were older Australians, the next generation would do the same for us as well. Um, so in that sense, I think this is, you know, a useful demonstration of the de- generational bargain in action. Um, an interesting question is, you know, when we get through this and we're on the other side, um, we know that young people tend to be hit particularly hard from the effects of downturns, uh, this one will be no exception. If we look at those sectors on the front line, they disproportionately employ young people. Young people are much less likely to have the sort of assets that you need to sustain yourself through a period of shutdown. Um, so I think that does raise some questions about when we do come out the other side, um, you know, how is it that we rebuild the economy? How is it that we start um, rebuilding the revenue base, and I certainly wouldn't want all that pressure to be put on income tax. I think that is an opportunity at that point to have a look at the balance of taxation and who's bearing the cost. Um, but you know, these are discussions for, for many months' time. Um, the climate point is a very interesting one. Um, so I would be very concerned if the fact that we came out of this, um, you know, in a sort of a fragile economic state in a world where people have taken a permanent income hit if that in any way reduced the appetite to take the necessary actions around climate change. Um, I think you can argue what we're doing here is we are accepting a sizable economic hit in order to save current lives. Um, In the climate debate, we are asking people to take a small hit. Um, The cost of action is not um, nowhere near as significant as what we're talking about here in order to save future lives. Um, And so I would hope, if anything, that would galvanise action. But I fear that in a world in which we are economically fragile, it might have the opposite effect. Thanks. We're running close to time, but I want to put a quick question to Stephen, a quick but very important question. This comes from Trent, Stephen, and it goes to the hope for a cure. Trent asks, are there any promising antiviral or other treatments for COVID-19? And what about progress on a vaccine? So the latter question first. Um, let's say a vaccine is invented immediately. You know, we have to scale up in the production and all those sorts of things. We cannot 
really seriously think about a vaccine being available for the next 12 to 18 months. So that's the best case scenario. Uh, there may never be a vaccine. Here's the other, is the worst case scenario. So that's vaccine. The treatment is um, a, a trickier question. Obviously there's, well, I should say there's millions of dollars as being invested in trying to find a vaccine, also millions of dollars being invested in trying to find a cure, in inverted commas. Um, basically, and there are a number of prospects on, on the, on the uh, agenda, some of them are old drugs, some of them are obviously trying to invent new ones. Um, it's way too early to tell is the short answer. There, everybody, there's many groups doing very, very different paths but this is not something you should expect to see a solution in 2020. Thanks, Stephen. John, I want to finish with you, if I may. John Daly is the CEO at Grattan. What is Grattan Institute planning to do from here, uh, John? That is, what is its role in this crisis? So I think as has become very obvious from this conversation today, um, we've already swung very substantial resources onto understanding um, COVID-19 and understanding what we as a country should do about it. Uh, Stephen looking at it from a health perspective, Danielle looking at it from a budgetary perspective, Brendan looking at it from a household perspective, I've been looking at it from, a, from an overall strategic perspective. Um, our schools team will be publishing something tomorrow looking at um, how we look after disadvantaged students, um, uh, students with parents with lower levels of education uh, who are more likely to, to do less well in a period in which they don't have face-to-face -face classes. So, um, you know, a huge number of Grattan resources have been swung towards this. So far, we've been worrying very much about how should government respond in the short term. Uh, these are difficult decisions. Um, and I'd like to think that the sort of perspective that Grattan has being slightly outside of government and sometimes a lot closer to the public, to the private sector um, gives us an, a number of insights around that. Um, going forwards, um, we'll obviously continue to think through what we should do. At the point that the, the country, frankly, very clearly settles on a strategy, uh, and I think that's one of the issues here, I'm still not sure whether we're actually trying to get in-game A or in-game C. Um, then we'll turn ourselves to understanding, well, how do we execute that strategy better? And then starting to think about, well, as we get to the, the um, uh, far side of this virus, how do we ensure that the country um, comes out of it as well as it can? How do we look at um, uh, ensuring that we, for example, stimulate the economy at the point that we're not trying to hold it back, which is roughly speaking where we are at the moment. Mm. How do we ensure we look after the households, not just for a kind of suspension of a couple of months, but for a long term, given that in a world of higher unemployment, there'll be a lot more people falling through the cracks. How do we look at setting up our health system in the long run, given that um, on any view of the world, there's going to be plenty of places around the world with large reserves of coronavirus um, kicking around that at any stage could re-enter. Um, all of these kind of questions we'll need to start thinking through um, uh, and we're certainly going to be doing that. These are really important policy questions. And of course, that's Grattan's role, uh, is to see the most pressing policy problems that Australia has, where the kind of data-driven work that we can do has an impact. And we've putting a lot of that up um, either in articles that we're publishing or on the Grattan blog. Um, and then talking about that with both the public and the policymakers. We think it's an incredibly vital function. One of the, the unusual things about Grattan is that we do see across all of these areas. And so with an issue like COVID-19, we can put it all together. Uh, and that's why you know, we thought it was important to really work on this. Um, we appreciate the support of all of those who tuned in today. Um, please do what you can to keep us going, but please also keep focusing on these issues and, and um, looking and engaging in the work that we do, because if you don't look at it and engage in it, there's frankly not a lot of point in doing it. So thank you for your support uh, and thank you, Paul. Thank you, John, and thank you, Stephen, Danielle and Brendan. And thank you again to you, our audience. This has been a heavily subscribed webinar and we hope you found it useful. You can let your friends and colleagues know that they will be able to watch the webinar from later this afternoon on our website and our social media channels. Please keep in touch with Grattan via our website 
wash your hands and keep your distance. Thanks for watching. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate.